Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go for your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earth to Brit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's. B-R-I-T-T. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is a Yellow Wave production. here earth to brit you know the deal hopefully you intended to be here if not i I do wonder sometimes actually how many listeners uh find me on accident is it an accident i guess we'll never know either way glad you're here um (laughs) also wonder how many of you realize i was supposed to have this episode out on tuesday it's not out it is tuesday right now tuesday evening and this will be out on Wednesday. Not intentional. I was just at a point last night where I realized sanity in one hand, um, an episode that who even knows what it would sound like or be like or how meaningful if it was able to even be put together. Like, you guys, I was just so tired that I don't even want to know what that episode would have looked like had I forced myself to do it. So I gave up the reins and said, okay, it is what it is. I am not, it's not, it is not happening right now. And, uh, and then I was like, well, might as well just not even have one this week. And then standard Brit, I just can't help myself. I promised you guys something. You're going to get it. Also, I was able to squeeze in some time and do this, which is good for me too. Okay. This is my sanity too. doing this, this podcast and this episode every week. It's very stressful. Don't get me wrong, but it saves me all in the same breath. Uh, this week I had something else planned, but then I found another little tidbit that just like was so perfectly packaged with so many fun, not fun. This is not fun. You guys, this is murder, but, um, it, it just had so many interesting and well-known things about it and a great variety. And it sounds like I'm talking about a meal at a wedding or something. (laughs) I'm talking about murder. Oh, um, yeah, so that's what we're going to do this week. But I just wanted a minute to hop on here and get ready for this. But also, I'm thinking about all the things that are starting to really pile up to the point where I can't quite ignore it anymore. So has anyone else not checked their email since quarantine? (laughs) So yeah, me, obviously, I'm talking about myself. I have not checked my email since The last time I checked was the last day I worked, which was March 16th. I am absolutely terrified, and that's probably why I didn't check it for the couple days after that. But then a couple days after that, and then now here we are, it probably just, it feels to me like it's just way too much and way too big, and I'm never going to be able to handle it. So now I'm just never going to check my email again, I guess. Also terrifying because all of the things I need to do are in there. You know, like life decisions, uh, my accounts and stuff that are connected to that. I'm hoping that no one really needed or needs anything from me that doesn't have my phone number or can't reach me otherwise, because I can't tell you when I'm going to get the courage and the time and the energy and the focus to check my email, which no doubt is the biggest, hottest mess of a, a just it's a I'm telling you guaranteed it's a shit show in there when I open that up I don't know that my phone or computer or whatever I use won't crash on the spot <laughs> oh my god I'm almost like thinking I need to pay somebody to do it for me because I really it's just 
very overwhelming to think about. And I'm afraid I'm at the point now where things are not going to be good. Like payments for things, um, subscriptions. I mean, oh, it's got to be addressed. But uh, guess what? Not today because I'm doing this. So just wondering if anyone else out there is like me and just whether it's your email or something that you're just you are not able to even address yet or look at, but you know it's going to be crazy when you do. Uh, that's quarantine. And I also have more than one account. It's the work account, the podcast account. Um, oh, it's just, just going to be Ms. 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 But I'll just save that for another day. And possibly that'll be the day that I experiment with some hard drugs. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure something's going to have to happen with that, though some courage of some form I will let you guys know if and what I decide to try <laughs> oh lord um so yeah there's that what else what else I thought of something the other day that was just so funny I couldn't even stop I was just laughing the whole time just the, at the thought of it damn standard I cannot remember um yeah mm, I don't know otherwise How's your week been going, peeps? What what have you been up to? I know that Illinois is very strict with quarantine, but this is phase three for us right now where I'm located. Um, we're clumped in with Chicago and then Cook County and um, up that way. <laughs> and yeah, I've got to say it's not been that much different for me. I've gone to my aunt's house and I've gone to a dear friend of ours house and we were all because we have so much room to be away from each other but other than that it's nothing has changed for me and I'm totally okay with that but I think that's enough of topics that I wanted to cover if not and I think of something while I'm recording I'll just tack it on to the end but yeah we're gonna go I'm gonna go ahead and do the quick intro here and then we'll move forward with this week's topic topics Plural, folks, that's right, plural. Because sometimes one murder case just isn't quite enough. This week, we are going to talk about 11 famous murders that never get old. Well, nah, not necessarily never get old, but they're just so terrifying as murder usually is, except these are the ones, not all of them, I don't include everything in this one, but these are some seriously messed up stuff that to this day is just like what in the actual hell is going on uh yeah and most likely you've heard of all of these I know you're gonna at least have heard of some of these even if it's only one regardless these are if you're into true crime you know these things like you've heard them even if you've just heard it in passing or in reference this is like cult classics murder edition if you will uh, we're going to talk about just a whole range of things from the Black Dahlia to Lizzie Borden to the Manson family and their stories in very, very concise, summarized sections that to this day are just so haunting and bone chilling, if you will. Like, what the heck? And they're very famous, like I said. And you know what's interesting is what makes a case famous? I think it's different for different cases. And I also think timing is everything because some of this stuff, it had if there had been one thing different or one different time that it happened instead of the time that it did actually happen, if it were switched to two years ahead or two years back, whatever, who knows if it would even reach the news at all. It's It's not just murders, though. Like, no one really knows the things that go viral like why did they go viral but it's similar to that so murder is is one of those types of things and it's easier to go viral although I don't I'm going to stop saying that because that's not necessarily what happened it's just stuff that you hear about and you're told about and then you tell other people about them because it's just so terrifying um and so they stick with us right so like some murders are so bizarre and so strange that they stick with us forever. And it's these murders that become famous. 
and they dominate headlines usually, airwaves with podcasts, the news, stuff like that, and they haunt our collective dreams. The ones that affect big groups of people, that's what we're talking about. And it's probably not just the deaths themselves that make these famous murders so chilling, uh, because if you think about it, millions of lives end every day without a single peep on the news, which is that in it itself is chilling. But there, like I said, there's a handful of cases that there's just something else that hits us on a deeper, more primal level, something that feeds into our darkest fears. And that's what we're going to talk about today. First up, I am not going to take it easy on you at all. Also, it goes without saying, none of these are easy, but some are worse than others for different reasons and for different people. So maybe this is not one after hearing all of these. Maybe this one's not one of the worst ones for you. That's okay. No judgment. The boy in the box. Okay, this is just so just... Oh, I'm speechless because I can't, I can't with it. I just can't. After 60 years, we're still no closer to solving the mystery of the boy in the box. It started on a chilly February day in 1957 on a roadside highway just outside of Philadelphia. A young muskrat hunter, checking his traps, stumbled upon a cardboard box lying in the woods. Inside was the dead body of a young boy who had been stripped naked and mutilated. The muskrat hunter didn't tell a soul. For real. True story. He was terrified that, if he reported it, the police would come down on him for his illegal traps. Guess what? Again, that's fine. I'm okay with that. They should. Fuck you. Anyone trapping, even if it is legal, I'll say it. Fuck you. And especially fuck you if you're doing illegal traps and then you find a dead body and you don't say anything because of your illegal fucking traps. How many more times can I say fuck? Try me. Let's see. Hang on. We just, we're just getting started. Let's see how many more times. For real, this guy makes me so mad. Or I, I guess it could be a... No, it said... It was a man. Either way, you're just... You're a piece of shit. Sorry, but you are. Um, and so for days, until a braver soul found him, the boy's body lay cold and rotting alone in the woods. Granted, I'm of the mindset that when you're dead, you're dead. So like when people try to get more empathy or sympathy or whatever by saying stuff like that it's like I get how it could be a thing for some people but it's not for me you're dead that boy's not there not saying it's okay to not alert alert authorities and figure out what's going on especially because who knows if this is continuing to happen or how this could affect somebody else if you had just brought it to the attention of the people who needed to know about it who knows we'll never know I'm just saying as far as that part, like being alone, he, he's not there. So it, that's not what I wanted you to focus on. Just FYI. This is weird. So the boy was somewhere between three and seven years old. And you're thinking three and seven. How can you not narrow that down? Well, because he had undergone terrible neglect. He was so small, super malnourished and unkempt. His hair had been cut around the time of his death because clumps of it still clung to his body that to me is also very weird red flags everywhere you guys and this is one of them uh the body itself was covered in small scars most of them on his ankles his groin and his chin also so weird like it just gets more and more weird and nothing about this makes any sense so there was one small act of care that had been given to this poor abandoned boy naked in the box and that is that whoever had killed him wrapped him up super tightly in a blanket before leaving him to rot it was that alone was the only hint of love he'd been shown just if you're not if your heart's not broken i mean are you human so the police fingerprinted the boy hoping to find a match but nothing came up hundreds of thousands of flyers were sent out to the surrounding area begging for information or anything about this unidentified boy, but no one came forward. His parents never claimed him as their own. Are they dead? Could they have been hurt too? No one knows the answers to any of these questions. Still, uh, the investigators tried everything they could. 
They analyzed the evidence from the crime scene, uh, from the cardboard box, even the blanket he was wrapped in. Every clue they followed, though, it just led to a whole new dead end. To this day, like I said, more than six years later, one of America's most famous murders remains unsolved. Nobody knows who the child was, who his parents were, or how he ended up naked and mutilated in a box in the woods. Tragically, after all these years, the world will probably never even learn the name of America's unknown child. Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. Her name was Elizabeth Short, but after this murder, she became worldwide known as the Black Dahlia. And she was an aspiring actress who wanted to be famous more than anything else in the world. She never did imagine, I'm sure, how she would receive that fame. And that's a good thing, because if you knew this was going to happen to you, I cannot imagine how what you would even do it this one is so it is so jarring I can't ever listen to anything about it or read about it before bed and I read a lot of weird things and listen to a lot of weird things and record a lot of weird things before bed this is one I cannot touch because it there's something about it that's just it truly chills me to my core um so yeah and that's how she got famous was being murdered in the most brutal astounding a shocking what the fuck way in my opinion of all time so on january 15th 1947 a young woman and her three-year-old daughter let me just say that again a young woman and her three-year-old daughter stumbled upon the body of 22 year old elizabeth short she was horribly mutilated lying in the grass of a low Los, I almost said Los Filos, which is also in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, a residential neighborhood, not Los Angeles. I mean, unless that's how you say it, but I don't. It's Los Angeles. So she was in just like a normal neighborhood. Her body completely chopped in half. It gets better. And by that, I mean way worse. The two pieces of her body were about a foot apart. Um, and by the way, these pictures, I'll try to do one for each case at minimum but it, her body is originally covered with a blanket so you have no idea and then they uncover it and you it's just can you i cannot even imagine how i think my heart would stop for a good two seconds at least for sure so her intestines had been removed folded up and then shoved back into her gut there were lig ligature marks on her wrists and pieces of her skin had been removed random right and again we're just gonna keep on bringing up the weirdest shit her body had been completely drained of blood okay so very specific things going on here if you're not noticing the worst part though probably was her face the killer had cut it open from the corners of both sides of her mouth to her ears permanently putting like this joker-like smile on her face that will never go away granted she's dead i'm just saying like for pictures for any for a funeral not doesn't matter that's like you i don't know how you could possibly fix that uh a week later an editor at the los angeles examiner received a phone call from someone who actually claimed to be the murderer he'd kept souvenirs he told him and that he would be sending them over in the mail like calling up an old friend you left this at my house i'll just send it in the mail so crazy weird uh, and it, it's also like they get, okay. So when things like this happen and they really hit the news and people really, really freak out about them, you get a lot of, uh, tips that don't even amount to anything, but you also get people admitting to the murders that never did it. And it's like a whole new brand of sickness for real. And I would assume if I were that person, like that's probably what's happening here, but it's not because he actually does it. <laughs> Four days later, a postal worker pulled out a letter addressed to the examiner. Inside was Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, business cards, photos, and her address book. Chilling. But like so many other famous murders, this one's crazy, chaotic media circus only 
obscured the investigation. Again, it happens so often. The police were overrun and overwhelmed with way too many tips to filter out the truth from the lies, and they interviewed 12 possible suspects. On top of that, they listened to more than 60 people who tried to insist that they were the killers. However, with all of this, they never managed to make a single arrest. Lizzie Borden and the killings that happened at her house. And just, you're going to, if you don't already know the story, you're going to figure out real quick. Um, She's definitely a suspect, but let's just be real. She's definitely the one for sure. So the deaths of Andrew and Abby Borden are arguably two of the most famous murders in all of American history. There's even a song about it. On August 4th, 1892, it was a day that started off like any other day for the family. Andrew started the morning by going into town to deal with some business, and that would leave his daughter Lizzie, who happened to be a 32-year-old Sunday school teacher, at home along with his wife named Abby and the family's maid, who was named Bridget Sullivan. When Andrew got back later that day, his wife was nowhere to be found. Lizzie told him that Abby had received a note and gone to visit a friend. Can you, by the way, picture having to receive a note to know to go see somebody? Forget that. I'm all about simpler times. That's a little too simple. (laughs) No, thank you. Um, Abby, though, didn't go anywhere. At that very moment, she was just upstairs, lying dead in a pool of her own blood. So Lizzie took her dad to the couch, helped him relax, basically guided him into a nap. Girl could walk for the calm app, work for the calm app, maybe. I'm thinking, like, how did she manage that? Maybe he was just, like, super tired all the time and liked naps. Not sure, but the way it's worded and described is just kind of funny. She tried to convince Bridget to leave the house, telling her about a department store sale down the road, whatever it took to get her to go away. But Bridget wouldn't do it. She did. She was not feeling well. She wanted to sleep. So she went to her room, laid down, and fell asleep. My guess is she was listening to this calm situation that you hear like the guided meditation that Lizzie was doing for her dad to fall asleep (laughs) I don't know something was happening that's for sure um Bridget's rest was cut short because all of a sudden she heard a lot of screams and shouts which turned out to be Lizzie screaming that her dad had been murdered when Bridget rushed out she found Andrew dead on the couch covered in blood his face was so badly disfigured that he was almost unrecognizable In the panic, Lizzie remembers that her stepmom, Abby, should have been back by now. She should be home. So she asked Bridget to go check for her upstairs. Uh, Spoiler alert for anyone who obviously knows how this ends. That search was cut short because Bridget only made it halfway up the stairs before she found her hacked to death with a hatchet. Yikes. Abby had received 19 blows from a hatchet and her husband had been hit 11 times. In the beginning, Lizzie was not even a suspect at all, but after a friend caught her burning one of her dresses because it was stained, she was arrested and put on trial for the murders. Ultimately, the court cleared Lizzie of the charges because there wasn't enough concrete evidence against her, um, and the defense provided witnesses that gave her, like, uh, some sort of shaky alibi, which to me an alibi is an alibi or it's not, whatever. These were way earlier times, as we know. Uh, Also, they just couldn't believe that the female Sunday school teacher could ever be capable of such crimes. Again, uh, in 2020, we don't we don't play that game. (laughs) That doesn't mean shit. It's just crazy to think, though, that's one of the biggest reasons that she was never charged. Uh, There's a ton of theories out there about what might have actually happened. And some of those do put the blame on Lizzie Borden. Others put it on Bridget, which I guess I don't know. And then still, others say the girls committed them together. But doesn't really matter because more than 100 years later, the mystery remains unsolved. JonBenet Ramsey. If you don't know this one, I don't even know how I truly, it's not even a judgment thing. I, I actually, physically, literally, however you want to say it or look at it, do not understand and I need to know like what's uh, your life like because I don't I don't know if I've ever met a person even outside of the U.S. 
who has not heard about this, at least heard about it. So obviously another unsolved murder of six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey, which, like I just mentioned somewhat, has kept the country's attention for more than two decades. I really would argue world. I really, really would. Similar to Madeline McCann. Uh, at the time of her death, JonBenet was a well-known beauty pageant who lived with her parents named Patricia and John Ramsey and her nine-year-old brother, Burke, and they lived in Boulder, Colorado. On the morning after Christmas in 1996, the Ramsey's family's lives were flipped upside down. Patsy called the police in a panic, saying she'd found a ransom note for their daughter. This three-page note demanded that the affluent Ramsey family pay 118000 very odd number, I must say, for the safe return of Jean Bonnet. But Jean Bonnet hadn't really been kidnapped. Hours later, her dead body turned up inside the family's home. Kind of like, where's the call coming from? It, our records show the call is coming from inside the home. <laughs> That's what that is like this whole time. Uh, after the examination of the body, it was discovered that she had been sexually assaulted and sustained a fracture to her skull. The six-year-old had also been strangled by an apparatus made from one of her mother's paintbrushes. Her death was ruled a homicide, but mistakes made by police at the crime scene would make it almost impossible for the killer to be found. We are not going to get into those mistakes because it is just entirely too much for me to handle. I cannot even deal with it, let alone talk about it with you. Look into it, though. It's alarming. So the family was suspected because of conflicting stories and the fact that the ransom note was written on paper from the house. But ultimately, John and Patsy were never indicted for the crime. Um, Burke, however, was also suspected by quite a few people, but he clearly, as we know, was not indicted either. Many other suspects were questioned and investigated by police, but none led to any answers. To this day, the tragic death of JonBenet Ramsey remains unsolved. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Peter Neufeld and Barry Scheck at Cardozo School of Law, and it exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. To get involved, you can go to www.innocenceproject.org and join a movement of 800,000 plus supporters on a mission toward criminal justice reform. Your contribution helps us continue the fight for criminal justice reform and exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. Every action makes a difference. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In the late 1920s, Chicago's gang war came to a crescendo with the deaths of seven men. It was a bloody scene that would live on in infamy as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This grisly mob hit, which was so just wait, I mean, we're not even going to get into the details at all, but it's just like, whoa. Uh, it was organized by Al Scarface Capone as a way to get rid of his rival, George Bugs Moran, once and for all, and then pretty much take his spot as the top dog of the Chicago mob scene. On the morning of February 14th, 1929, four of Capone's men showed up at Moran's, Moran's, that's rude, Moran, whatever, maybe that is how you say it, I don't even know, his warehouse where he illegally distributed liquor. It's believed that Capone uh, tried to kind of like tricked him to the warehouse by pretending that one of his bootlegging ventures in Canada needed assistance. Five of uh, his men, Moran's men, they answered his call, Capone's. Let me just say that again, because that sounded confusing. Five of Moran's men answered Capone's call, accompanied by two car mechanics. So those people and then two other people. They filed into the warehouse, never imagining what Capone's... Seriously? <laughs> never ma imagining that... Uh, okay, well, I'm actually impressed that I've gotten this far into it without anything like super mistake wise so i'm just gonna go ahead and call that a fucking win 
They filed into the warehouse, never knowing or imagining that Capone's men were lying in wait. As Albert Weinshank, which was the last of Moran's men to arrive, left his Cadillac sedan on the street and made his way into the warehouse, he was accosted by two police officers who forced him inside. Moran's men, believing they were being arrested, lined up against the wall, their backs to the police, all remaining silent so as not to let out their boss. Um, basically, no one say anything. Snitches get stitches. That type of stitch. Uh, so the men who'd stopped them, though, were not police officers at all. They were two of Capone's men in disguise. Brilliant, but also this happens all the time. All the time. Uh, once Moran's men were lined up against the wall, two more of Capone's men, dressed in plain clothes, stepped inside with submachine guns in their arms. This is so terrifying. They basically opened arms and just went to town and just bullets everywhere. Six of them died on the spot, but one lingered on painfully for hours until he slowly bled out on a hospital bed. Not ideal. So the plan's original target, Bugs Moran, was never hit. The men had mistaken Weinshank for Moran. Moran, you guys, whatever. You know what I'm saying. That's all that matters. Uh, so they mistook Weinshank for Moran, which was the mistake that saved Bug Moran's life. So Capone was the obvious suspect, but he ended up evading justice, as you usually do in the mafia. And no one has ever... No one, not even him, no one was ever brought to trial for the murders. Makes me wonder if it's like, oh, these were just gang people, that's why? I, or like, I mean, it's, that's got to be part of it. That has to be part of it. On top of that, Capone never took credit for the violence and the bloodshed during the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Silence does not mean innocence. And I'm, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just saying I don't blame the police because... All the people involved were strictly mafia, mob, all that gang. Okay. Um, I personally don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, so <laughs> they did not either. And that's just my guess. Oh, you guys, this one. The Lindbergh baby. Side note. Some of these, one of them for sure I have covered already separately, and some of these, I plan on doing that in the future. And this is 500% one of them. Holy shit, it's crazy. So this is all about the heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking kidnapping and death of 20-month-year-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. And it's gone down as one of the most famous murders in American history, just like some of these other ones. On March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh Sr., a famous aviator who, come on now, tell me, you don't fail me now, you know who I'm talking about, he achieved celebrity status when he flew solo across the Atlantic. So on this day, March 1st, he hears a noise coming from his kitchen that sounded like a wooden crate snapping closed. Minutes later, the family's nurse discovered that the Lindbergh baby was missing from his crib. Lindbergh Sr. entered his son's room and found a ransom note on the windowsill as well as a broken ladder outside of the window. Bone chilling. The note demanded $50,000 in exchange for his son's safe return. <sighs> Lord. Okay, over the next three months, the Lindbergh family, with the help from the FBI, desperately searched for the missing baby. Lindbergh Sr. even paid the enormous ransom request to his son's kidnapper. The kidnapper though, like you, they usually don't, never held up his end of the bargain. Charles Lindbergh Sr. would never see his son alive again. On May 12, 1932, over two months after the baby first went missing, his tiny body was discovered dead just over a mile from his family's mansion. How horrifying. It's just so close and the whole time. Um, another thing that's horrifying, this is a little bit more than two months after that. Uh, guess what? They find that the baby had been dead for at least two months and they believe without full proof, but they believe that he died on the same day that he was kidnapped. His skull had a hole in it and his bones had endured several other fractures. 
you guys, my, why, why? Some of the child's body parts had even been chewed off. Animals, it appeared, had gotten to the body first, which usually happens as well. So in the end, the official culprit was identified as Richard Hauptmann, who was a German immigrant with criminal record. Hauptmann was caught after using some of the ransom money. The media attention surrounding the Lindbergh baby's kidnapping and the subsequent trial was, uh, to put it lightly, chaotic. In what was dubbed the trial of the century, Hauptmann was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to death. He later died in the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. Now, this is you've pro- this part I love when you find out where things came to be. So, the tragedy of this Lindbergh baby case pushed Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, which made transporting a kidnapped vic- victim across state lines a federal offense. The law is commonly referred to as the Lindbergh Law. Sharon Tate. The last one I talked about was, is going to most likely be a future episode. This one is a past episode. So repeat of information, yes, but it's still going to happen because she deserves it. So And it's a huge, huge case. So actress... Sharon Tate's gruesome murder at the hands of the Manson family while she was more than eight months pregnant has terrified Hollywood and the rest of America for decades. To this day, absolutely still a thing. On the night of August 8th, 1869, come on, listen, a hundred years later, sure. Actually, what wonder what went down, if anything, crazy a hundred years before. What did happen August 8th? 1869 if you know let me know that be that would be interesting but no we're talking about august 8th 1969 when she was at home with friends wochiek remember i could never say that name still can't turns out still have not figured it out Furkowski, um the coffee heiress abigail folger and celebrity hairstylist jay sebring her bestie so her husband director roman polanski was out of the country filming a movie they were renting a glamorous house in the Benedict Canyon neighborhood in Los Angeles at the time, and the house would become the setting for these murders. Infamous cult leader Charles Manson instructed a few of his loyal followers to enter the house and kill everyone inside as, in quotes, gruesomely as you can. So once they got to the property, they murdered 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was visiting the estate's caretaker. Then they made their way inside, and their sights set on the home's inhabitants they gathered the four people in the living room and tied them up Uh, jay was protesting saying they were treating the eight-month pregnant sharon tate far too roughly which guess what for sure they were they didn't care if that's the goal uh the only answer he got was a bullet in the chest a foot to his face and a knife thrust into his body again and again until he died folger and frakowski got free of their bindings at one point and tried to make a run for it both escapes failed and they were chased down and brutally stabbed dozens of times. Tate was the only one left alive. She was begging to be let go, let her live, begging for the life of her baby, even offering as to be a hostage till her baby could be born. Oh, the girl tried everything because she was a true mother. Uh, the Manson family, though, was not moved and could have cared less. They stabbed her to death and used her blood to write the word pig on the home's front door. So the motive behind the attack, excuse me, the motive behind the attack lies not in anything to do with those people, but the house itself. The previous owner, tenant, whatever, was music producer Terry Melcher, and he had earlier denied Manson a recording deal, so Manson wanted revenge. By the end of the year, all of the assailants from that night were caught, as was Manson himself, thank God, and they were sentenced to life in prison. Every request for parole has been denied. Let's uh, keep that up, by the way, because that's terrifying. But yeah, so they're all in prison. They've all been denied for parole. Um, Charles Manson did die. He, he's, he's gone now, but whew, still super wild, right? <laughs> Oh boy, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. OJ, everyone, think OJ. 
which is actually one of those strange things for people who were alive at the time. I was young. You don't even understand. I have, I, I was so young. But I also remember the chase. That's what I saw on the news live as it was happening. Just crazy that I have that in my memory as a solid, like, kind of like 9-11. It's, it's like that. So where were you? Or were you alive even? Because uh, if you think about it, you will know. If you were alive, you will know where you were. Or what you were doing, stuff like that. Uh, so mostly, I think, the reason this was such a crazy and has just been forever a cult favorite, if you will. I hate, I don't really like saying that favorite, like it's somebody's life. This was huge. And it's mostly because the trial that followed the famous murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goleman is one of the most highly publicized trials in American history to this day. So Nicole was the ex-wife of famous football player O.J. Simpson. They got married in 1985 and had two kids, but their relationship was tumultuous, to say the least, and fraught, full of, however you want to word that, with domestic violence. Like, everyone knew about it. So it was definitely a thing. In 1992, after seven years of marriage, Nicole filed for divorce. On June, uh, June 12, 1994, Two years later, Nicole and her friend Ronald Goldman were found brutally murdered outside of Nicole's Brentwood, California home. They were both stabbed to death, with Nicole stabbed five times in the neck. In fact, according to court testimony, her throat was savagely slashed down to the spinal cord. Wow, right? Uh, Nicole's ex-husband, OJ, was the prime suspect. So OJ agreed to turn himself in, but on June 17th, he decided, fuck that, and made a run for it instead with his friend AC. With a gun to his head, threatening to kill himself, OJ led police on a chase throughout Los Angeles until eventually he turned himself in. So basically, started out to do something, had to do a little show for people, and then instead of just doing what he ended up doing anyways, whatever. During the trial... Tons of evidence was stacked against OJ for this crime. His blood was found at the crime scene. DNA from Nicole and Goldman were found in his car and his home. A pair of his gloves were found on Nicole's property. And a bloody footprint at the murder scene matched his shoe. It, let's just pretend for a second that isn't the OJ case. Just try to take that, out, that part out of it. Guilty, correct? Okay. Well, no, because... As we know, anyone who knows this case, which feels like everyone, but if you don't, don't feel stupid. I'm just, I don't, I just don't know that, again, I've met anyone who hasn't heard of this one either. So that's all I'm saying. It's huge. Probably because despite all that evidence, OJ was ultimately acquitted of the murders of his ex-wife and Goldman. Um, However, he was later found guilty of the crimes in civil court and was ordered to pay the families $33.5 million. So much that I want to say about that right now that I'm not going to say a single word because I might cover this in the future, but let that sink in. Finally, he's found guilty later on and ordered to pay $33.5 million. Um, I have a question. How is my... I have so many questions, and I'm like I said, I'm just gonna let that one go. But yeah, that's exactly what happened with that. Dorothy Stratton was just a normal 18-year-old girl working at a Dairy Queen in British Columbia, Canada, when she met Paul Snyder. He wooed her with flattering words and told her that she was going to be a star. He actually put the idea of modeling in her head and even convinced her to move to Los Angeles to compete in Playboy's 25th anniversary Great Playmate Hunt. That's a mouthful. Jeez Louise. Uh, he latched himself onto her rising star, fan, like total success story. Just did it, goes, tries it, and just one of those stories where you, you that's very rare, but good for her just saying, Super crazy. Um, and he actually had done that for the very basic fact of becoming rich off of her, which is interesting because 
I mean, where do I start? But not exactly how it works. Also, you could probably just make your own money, whatever. So Hugh Hefner saw the same potential in her and declared, told everyone that she's going to be the next Marilyn Monroe. She was featured in Playboy as Miss August 1979, and soon after that, she was appearing in films like Buck Rogers, Fantasy Island, and Galaxina. So again, she's rising through this fame quickly, going up, up, up through the ranks, and the press is already calling her at this time one of the few emerging goddesses of the new decade. She locks down this movie role opposite of Audrey Hepburn, and while filming the movie in New York, she began a an affair with the movie's director. So not ideal at all. Uh, Snyder was pretty much kind of like, I feel like he's the jealous type and just constantly super insecure, something like that. But he's so suspicious of her and so badly so that he hires a private investigator to follow her. Once she comes home, she tells her husband the truth, though, not even knowing that she's being followed, that she's in love, and she wants a divorce. So he doesn't say much, not in front of her anyway, but his friends later reported that after she called it off and wanted a divorce, he started taking a strange interest in guns and hunting. Super large red flag. Lots of people put out smaller medium-sized red flags throughout he just lays down this bombshell biggest big ass huge red flag all of a sudden he's interested in guns and hunting i don't like that i don't like it at all so he bought a 12 gauge shotgun took a few shooting lessons and then started letting it slide into conversations that playboy had a policy to not print nude pictures of a girl if she got murdered what does that have to do with you, you asshole? Because it's not your body. But <laughs> we cannot even think for a second that it will be okay for me to go off on that right now. Because it will not, we will not be doing that. We will just be here for all days. We will be here for a week at least. Uh, yeah, so I'm not going to touch that. But I feel like you need to know if it's not obvious. Um, I want to kind of go off on him right now just for that alone. So then on August 14th, 1980, uh, she was visiting Paul Snyder at his house to discuss a property settlement that she had offered him in the divorce. However, Snyder would take this opportunity when they were alone and make his move that if you can't tell from previous sentences, he's kind of working his way up to this. He's definitely got a plan. So he takes the 12 gauge shotgun and shoots her through the eye, which kills her. By the way, you, that sounds obvious. No, 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 no. You wouldn't believe the amount of horror and murder stories I hear where, or survivor even, not even just one shot, multiple shots to the head and people survive that shit. You you really, it, it's rare, but it happens. It's it's so jarring too to know some, just ugh, trust me, go look it up if you want. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple at the top of my head, pun not intended. That are really, really, really like, how did you survive? If I think of it, I'll let you guys know. But either way, it does kill her. But trust me when I say this, that doesn't always happen. And it's so crazy. So then that's not enough. He rapes her. She's dead. And he rapes her before turning the shotgun on himself. So here's this beautiful young woman who was poised to be one of the next big Hollywood stars. But now when people hear her name, it's instead attached to her famous murder. Want to make a difference in someone's life? There are millions of ways you can do that, but this one is extra special. It's something I've always wanted to do, and recently I did the damn thing. I wrote to a prisoner. A prisoner who is desperate for a friendship outside the walls of prison. Write a Prisoner is an amazing program that allows you to search prisoners who are requesting letters from all over the world. You can do a basic search like age, maximum sentence length, even horoscope sign. Or you can do an advanced search, raising my hand over here, that's my jam, and get real specific. I chose all which on the site is any, meaning no stipulations, but I felt 
hold the most to an inmate on death row. You can search for as long or as little as you like. I searched for five and a half hours because I knew I would know as soon as I saw the one. Female, male, it didn't matter to me. The crime didn't matter. My search paid off because, as I suspected, I knew right away when I found my pen pal. I have zero doubts that this experience will impact my pal, but it'll probably impact me the most. I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> Curious? Head over to www.writeaprisoner.com and find your friend or friends because there is no limits to how many pen pals you write to, but it is highly suggested that you do not write to multiple prisoners at a single location. Go. Do it. For more information, go to www.writeaprisoner, that's W-R-I-T-E-A-P-R-I-S-O-N-E-R.com, and change a life. Gianni Versace. The shooting of fashion icon Gianni Versace in broad daylight in front of his mansion in Miami South Beach to this day is still so completely perplexing. And there are so many different stories and versions of what happened. So at the time of his death, Versace was a well-known fashion designer. He's the man who created the Versace Fashion House. He was a superstar in the fashion world, dressing world figures like Princess Diana of Wales. That's a big deal. But on the morning of July 15th, 1997, it is noted that he was acting very strangely. There are witnesses who say that moments before his death, he went down to a local cafe, passing the entrance and then circling back to enter. A hostess later remarked that it seemed as if he thought someone was following him. So he buys a newspaper and then turns around, heads back to his multi-million dollar Mediterranean via, but he would never make it through the front door. So it is unclear exactly how the murder went down. Some people say they saw a young man in his 20s approach Versace from behind and shoot him twice in the head. Others say that the men looked like they knew each other and were struggling over a bag of some sort when a gun went off. But, I mean, however it happened, one of the world's most iconic fashion designers was dead. The man who was responsible was 27-year-old Andrew Cunanan. Sorry if I'm not saying that correctly. I mean, I'm willing to be corrected. So if you know how to say that and it's not how I did, let me know. Uh, He had a reputation in the local gay community as a flashy gold digger who targeted older men to squeeze free trips, expensive items, stuff like that out of them. But many people also called Cunanan unhinged. You don't say. (laughs) I mean, I think it... I think it takes someone like that to do something like this. In the three months before murdering Versace, Cunanan killed four other men across the country and landed himself on the FBI's most wanted list. So when he does something, he does it big. He does not fuck around, clearly. However, he would never have to answer for his crimes or reveal his motive for killing Versace because, let me tell you right now, that is the most frustrating thing when you don't ever know the why which we usually don't, but still, it's it's just the worst. Um, because he killed himself inside of a Miami houseboat not long after Versace's murder, leaving behind no note, just a few belongings. So unhinged, probably. Usually people leave a note or something, but if it's last minute, I mean, and you're mentally unhealthy, which probably are if you're committing suicide. Side note, guys, that's probably the case. Um, there's something else because most people just cannot help at least leave something, anything, but which, Hey, hold on. Have we looked into this as not a suicide, possibly murder? I might have to do some digging after the, this recording. (laughs) I'll let you know if I find anything. Okay. We have finally reached the last one that I'm going to talk about this week. And that is the murder of Kitty Genovese. This is bananas. So this woman, Kitty Genovese, was killed outside of her apartment while many of her own neighbors watched. And after finding out that fact, that main basic 
chilling factor of this story, it, the public was completely shocked. And to this day, wh- what happened? How? How? So the young woman, like I said, was murdered, screaming for help while her neighbors heard her screams, did nothing. Psychologists have asked themselves, how could someone see an attack or witness a crime taking place and do nothing? So this is actually because of this case, you guys. The term bystander effect is coined by these psychologists. And you will find it in just about every psychology textbook to this day. Around 2.30 a.m. on March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese left the bar she worked at in Hollis, Queens, and drove home to her apartment in Kew Gardens. She didn't notice the car that pulled out of a nearby parking lot and followed her all the way home. Kitty was not, I don't think, a true crime junkie because she would for sure have noticed that. Again, real quick, not victim blaming. Um, just saying that's something I know, like I would for sure notice, but it's not her fault. That doesn't mean anything other than the fact that I think people are more paranoid now or maybe because of things like her case specifically just very very aware of surroundings not sure but either way you as a listener need to do that you need to be aware of your surroundings for real you always think it'll never happen to you until it happens to you okay that's just how it works no one expects it to happen to them or they do but that's just called anxiety (laughs) let's be real that's something different but it, that's when anxiety works in your favor. Fun fact. <laughs> okay, because I'm still alive today, aren't I? Knock on wood. Seriously, no, I'm just going off the rails. Um, okay, so she parks her car at the railroad station and starts the roughly 100-foot walk to her apartment building. And that's when Winston Mosley attacks. So she screams as he stabs her. At this point, it's 3.15 a.m. Her cries for help were loud enough to wake all of the neighbors but not a single one of them came to her aid. There was one man who shouted, leave that girl alone, and that was enough to scare Mosley away. But even with him gone, nobody helped Genevieve's back to her feet. For ten, You guys, this is a true story, mind you. For 10 minutes, she crawled across the ground, slowly bleeding out, no one helping her. And the stuff of true crime horror movies that you just can't even make up. Mosley comes back, starts stabbing her several more times, rapes her, robs her, then runs off. Neighbors did not even, okay, so sure, you're not helping her? Not sure, but whatever. Okay, I, I can't judge because I wasn't there. That's one thing, but nobody called the police until after 4 a.m., which is almost an hour after she'd first been attacked. Obviously, by then, it's too late. She was already dying, still alive, but not savable. There were a couple witnesses who said that they called the police, but their calls weren't given priority. Others pretty much just said they assumed that someone else would do it instead. Listen, no, 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 no. Everything they did is all wrong. Even if you feel like I'm the hundredth person calling, you fucking call. You just don't ever know. Plus, think about it like this. Say everyone's calling. If you call too, it makes it known like this shit's important. Somebody it needs your help right now. You know what I mean? Uh, so this neighbor's behavior of all of the neighbors, there's no one in particular that I'm calling out. It costs the young woman her life and has since then been grimly immortalized, like I said, in psychology textbooks, as well as history books, because there's never been a time until this that we know of where so many people saw and were able to do something and didn't. Woo, did it. We did it. So yeah, that's all, all 11 that were the ones that were focused on this week. That was 11 of the most infamous true crime murders. Most of them unsolved, if you didn't notice. Just a handful, if that, that were solved. Granted, take that with a grain of salt, because not necessarily in this week's cases, but just because something says solved does not ever mean that it is solved. Just because somebody is accused of being guilty does not make them guilty. 
hate to break it to you, the system is so far from perfect. Um, and other than that, I can't really go into that more because I don't have enough time. <laughs> I don't have enough time. That's a whole other podcast. It's been a while since I've said that, I think, but definitely not thought that. It's been no time at all. I think that every five minutes, but I don't think I've said it in a, in a bit. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that. It wasn't necessarily what I had planned, but I, it actually worked really well. And I thoroughly enjoyed touching on so many different cases that are just mind blowing for one, so famous for two. It was just, that was nice to do. And it was a lot, it was more relaxing for me than usual, which the fact that I say anything in regards to talking about true crime and murder as relaxing might be alarming. Don't be. That's totally normal for me. Especially, it's season two, you guys. Okay, season two, episode 22. If you're not used to it by now, I cannot hold your hand any longer. Uh, But in all seriousness, next week's episode is going to be amazing. I am so excited for this. Like, so, so excited. It's not an exciting case. It's actually very sad. They all are. But this is, it's just horrible and it's horrifying however it is a true story it happened and guess what it still happens to this day okay so yeah I just wanted to let you guys know it's going to be a good one it's actually I think this might be the first time I'm telling you what I'm going to be covering next week up an earth to Brit first this is great this is history in the making just like what's happening in the world around us right now um, on that regard, this is a next week. I'm going to be talking about George Stinney Jr. If you are um, on my Facebook, and I don't know if I did it for Earth to Brit or my personal one. Either way, I was doing a fundraiser for Innocence Project, and it came up that in my search of whatever I was searching at the time, who even knows, this person, George Stinney Jr. Um, on June 16th was put to death and he wasn't guilty and he was 13 when it happened and 14 when he was put to death and if I'm sorry I have to stop because I'm gonna throw up yes I will get that under control before next week um, because otherwise it's going to be a real bad episode you're gonna hear me puking every five minutes so I'll take care of that you just be sure to show up and listen to it because it's really interesting it's history but it's like it's, there's so much about it that the reason I want to do it next week because of everything that's going on in our world right now, it's very similar with that, um, very relatable to that. But also, next week is June 16th. That will be, shoot, what year? Let me do this real quick. What year was that? Because it will be an anniversary, if you will, of this boy i won't even say man he is straight up a boy it will be a what am i even saying <laughs> rare footage of brit not making any sense and blabbering her mouth off guess what not so rare at all okay so hold on what is math right i mean fuck math 2020 76 okay that took entirely too long, but that should go to show you how much my brain has deteriorated since quarantine. And also, math was never a strong suit, so now I'm really, just don't even look at me with that, right? Okay, so yeah, next Tuesday is the George Stinney Jr. case on Earth to Brit, and it is the 76th year to the day that he was put to death by people who... There's no way they didn't know. Like, they didn't even try. They didn't even care. And that, I just don't understand. But, oh, get ready for that one. Prepare yourself however you have to. But please show up because it's going to be very good. And very important to listen to stuff like that and to not learn. Yeah, learn. But also keep that stuff going. Remembering that stuff because that shit needs to stop happening, Okay. It just does. So we got to keep talking about it and making it known and stay angry, okay? I usually am not about that. I'm about being positive and happy, but not when it comes to this bullshit. Stay angry. Stay hungry. 
We are not anywhere near done. We're just getting started. And this is going to be one of those things that's just going to keep that fire going. I'm going to fuel your fire if you're running low. Then you're going to want to show up next Tuesday to hear about George St- George Stinney Jr. and his case. And I would bring some Kleenex and stuff because it's okay to cry and get it all out. But then stay angry, okay? Don't let it make you soft because it's not time to forget or slow down. We got to keep this train going. <laughs> We can't stop. All right. So yeah, that's something you have to look forward to. And unless life throws me a whole shit ton of lemons like it did this week, you're going to have it on Tuesday like you should. And I'm going to make sure my family and everyone knows. Like if I have to take my kids somewhere or do, I'm going to do what I have to do no matter what to make this happen. So it's going to be a thing. No worries. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something. If not, um, look up any of those names I mentioned. Look them up. Trust me, it's there's a sea of information out there on every single case I talked about, and it's very fascinating. And just it's especially the Genovese one with the people watching. I mean, psychologists coined a new term because of it. What exactly? I mean, this stuff is so crazy. So yeah, it's not all just about um, grit and grime and blood. Although that's definitely there, there's lots of interesting factors in these cases. And that's probably why there are so many true crime junkie fans out there. And I'm glad that you're one of them. Have a good rest of your day or whatever it is. And see you next week. Peace out. (laughs) Oh, silly boy. Peace out. (laughs) Peace out. Thank you.